Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone from New York City. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We uh, conducted a recent survey on the types of programs that have excited the listenership over the past year or so. And one of the items that periodically has come up and one of the more popular items that uh, the listenership is very curious about, and I'm talking both about the professional groups and and the broader public, is Native American affairs. The uh, involvement of Native Americans in archaeology generally and in preservation matters in particular is a topic that has woken up a lot of people to not only archaeology, but the relevance of archaeology in contemporary um, American life and how it impacts the indigenous populations of uh, North America. It also is a topic that in a greater scale involves indigenous populations all over the world. We've had a number of programs on those, but today's focus is on legal matters associated with Native American groups and how archaeology gets involved with that. My guest today is Mr. Greg Werkheiser, and Greg is a founding partner of the law and policy firm Cultural Heritage Partners, PLLC, and its uh, allied strategic advisory firm, the Heritage Group. He earned his JD from the University of Virginia School of Law, and he has a BA in government for the College of William and Mary, also in Virginia. Greg has been involved in a number of matters that relate to uh, not only Native American sites, but also to traditional historic properties. And he is going to be discussing these, uh, a, a number of cases. Uh, with respect to those particular issues as we uh, continue to develop this topic. And as I said, it is one of the more intriguing and popular topics that we've presented on the program. Greg, thanks very much for uh, getting involved in the program. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I look forward to our conversation. Let's uh, let's begin with your interest and in how you got started in uh, first of all in archaeology and melding archaeology with a legal practice and, and getting involved in legal issues associated both with Native American matters and just more generally. Well, I I owe my love of history really to my uncle who was an avocational archaeologist in uh, northeast Pennsylvania when I was growing up, and he would frequently take my younger brother and I out into the great woods of Pennsylvania and show us uh, remnants of cultures that had clearly lived uh, hundreds, if not thousands of years before us, and for many reasons didn't show up in 
my middle school and high school textbooks. So it was an intriguing mystery that he was showing us. And of course, any kid who gets exposed to a mystery gets more intellectually interested. So always loved history, had a particular fascination for Native American history. Uh, but frankly, I always thought that I would be a, a civil rights attorney focusing on the right side instead of the preservation side. It wasn't until uh, really uh, midway through law school that the idea that one could use the law to aid archaeologists and others in preserving history and then using that history to shape a better future that uh, really took hold, uh, took hold for me. So was it more a civil rights motivation, or was there a particular item or issue that brought you together with Native American affairs um, or, and archaeology? How did that work? Was there a turning point in your career where you said, you know, this is the type of thing I'd like to get involved with and merge these two particular fields? So I, when I graduated uh, law school, now I guess about 16 years ago, and I began to practice with a law firm that at the time had 250 attorneys. And when I later left it, about uh, six years later, uh, it had 3,000 attorneys and had become the largest law firm in the world. And because of student loans, Sally May was my... Um, was the woman in my life. I needed to pay back student loans. I was, right, I was uh, deeply involved in a traditional commercial litigation practice representing sometimes Fortune 500 companies and uh, really suing to take large chunks of money from one corporation's pocket and put it in another. A very soul-inspiring uh, practice if there ever was one, a necessary one, but maybe one that wasn't uh, completely inspiring to me. And mm-hmm. then I was three months old as an attorney, a practicing attorney, when I got a call from my uncle. And he said, uh, hey, Greg, uh, we've got these friends. They uh, belong to a Native American tribe in New Jersey. They're interested in preserving this 40-acre uh, property that has a significant archaeological record. And they don't have an attorney can you be their attorney uh, tomorrow in court in New Jersey at 8 a.m.? Uh, now, uh, this is the first I had heard of the matter. I'm not then, nor am I now a licensed New Jersey attorney, and I was at the time in Washington, D.C., and it was midnight, so I had eight hours to figure out whether or not uh, this is something I should take on. But ultimately, concluded, based on everything I knew uh, with my three months of practicing law, that uh, this is a case that uh, would last exactly one hearing. So I agreed to do it. My boss gave me permission. She had been, uh, she had paid for her law school by dealing cards in the uh, casinos in Atlantic City, and she thought it would be a good experience to go up and cut my teeth in New Jersey on a cultural heritage matter. So I went up, and as it turns out, it did not last one hearing. It lasted uh, 26 hearings over almost uh, six years, and. By that point, by the time it was done, I was, uh, whether I liked it or not, I was a semi-experienced cultural heritage lawyer. So to set the stage here, if this happened 16 years ago, this is, I'm doing the math here, this is nine years after NAGPRA um, was basically introduced as law. So 
as many of you do know, the Na uh, Native American Graves and Repatriation Act was kicked into uh, law in 1990, and there was a long period that there, where there's still actually a period of transition as this law itself is trying to be applied and has resulted in a number of litigation situations all over the country. But certainly back then, this was pretty much... Uh, unknown territory for doing this type of litigation and I would add to that that anyone who has been involved in northeastern archaeology in the New York, New Jersey area is a bit familiar with the Black Creek site because it was an area of some significant controversy. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on Black Creek and, and how that became a, a major issue and one that went from one hearing to about 20-some-odd. Uh, Why don't you give us a little background because it was quite an item back then. Sure. Well, you know, the... The law case that you and I are going to spend a little bit more time talking about uh, today uh, is uh, a matter I have on behalf of the Ninacoke Lenni Lenape Indians of New Jersey. Uh, that was the same client back in the year 2000 that engaged me to help them on the Black Creek case. So some things change, some things never change. They continue to be uh, one of my favorite uh, Clients, but the Black Creek site is about a 40-acre lot of land in Sussex uh, County in in northern New Jersey, about an hour outside of Manhattan. It's a bowl-shaped property, and up on the edge of the bowl, you can look down into the valley over the Black Creek site, and if you were a hunter, you could see game coming from miles away. And then the Black Creek itself was a navigable waterway that would eventually get you all up and down the East Coast. So for that reason, because it was a main trade route and because the land was protected and it was great hunting grounds, uh, people lived there apparently for almost 10,000 continuous years. So that's 500, by our best guesstimate, 500 generations of human beings that uh, lived in the same spot. That's slightly unusual, as you know, Joe, for Native American sites, which are frequently seasonal. You know, maybe they last 50, 100 years in terms of the occupancy, and then uh, folks tended to move on, at least on the East Coast. So what had been found, again, by an avocational archaeologist in the fields just on the surface of the site indicated an almost continuous 10,000-year history. So you could see the whole evolution of human life in the tools that were produced, the materials that were left behind, um, and there was a significant archaeological record. Unfortunately, the leadership of the town did not see the value in preserving the site. Uh, they had decided that they were going to bulldoze it, uh, to create space for uh, recreational sports fields, including soccer fields. Right. Um, of, of course, since Native Americans invented lacrosse, <laughs> they are not uh, on the surface opposed to recreational sports uh, or having sports fields available to kids. Uh, the benefit of living in Vernon is, you know, there's... Uh, Tons of um, Vernon Township, this is in Sussex County, there's tons of available space. So it made no sense to us that the sports fields could not be built adjacent to the, um, to the historic site. And in fact, after six years of fighting, uh, 
and finally winning on our side. That's exactly what happened. They ended up building the sports fields just uh, just down the road. But this was the first time that a municipality had challenged a site that had already been determined to be eligible for listing on the State and National Register of Historic Places. And New Jersey does not have overly uh, developed protections for historic sites. So we ended up using as our legal basis an environmental law that had a section in it, almost a throwaway line, that said that the law would also allow for the protection of historic resources. And we, um, we sued. And the township decided on the first day that we were in court that instead of um, coming and debating the merits of this, while we were in court, they would send in the bulldozers in an attempt to destroy the site uh, so that the, there would be nothing left for the judge to protect. Um, as you can imagine, you don't have to be a lawyer to imagine that this was not pleasing to the judge who, who ordered right, my opposing <clears throat> counsel uh, to leave the courtroom immediately and put a cease uh, and desist order on the uh, bulldozers for fear of uh, under threat of losing his law license. And that right, hold that, hold, the, hold that thought because we have to go to yeah. break right now. We'll leave the audience in a little bit of suspense here. We'll be back with this very (laughs) fascinating discussion with Greg uh, Werkheiser, um, a founding partner of Cultural Heritage Partners, and we will get into the dynamics of this very fascinating trial and legal uh, procedure at the Black Creek site right after these words. Don't go away. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. On the morning of August 5, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. Good Night Marilyn Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. I'm back with Greg Werkheiser, who is a founding partner of the law and policy firm Cultural Heritage Partners in the greater D.C. area. And Greg has been discussing a pivotal case in, uh, shall we call it, archaeological conflict, if you will, between um, the emerging world of Native American uh, heritage and uh, the legal system, if I might put it that way. And we were talking about the Black Creek site, which is a well-known archaeological site, especially for those of us who are in the metro New York, New Jersey area. And it was the subject of a, severe, of a major uh, legal contentious issue that involved the recognition for national register pay, uh, purposes of a, a very, very major site that, that had been occupied at least semi-continuously for 10,000 years, certainly since the early archaic period and forward. Greg, why don't you, you were talking about and building up a certain amount of tension here about bulldozers on the site and all archaeologists who are who having this type of experience are saying, okay, this is, this is the moment of reckoning. Take us back to that point and follow it through if you would. Sure. Well, we uh, left court uh, that morning we were seeking a preliminary injunction, which is basically asking the court to call a timeout so that we can assess the facts and um, make a determination. Uh, we we won the injunction. Uh, we stopped the bulldozers, but not before they had cut a swath kind of through the center of the site. Unfortunately, that backfired for the township because what the bulldozers ended up turning up were... Um, thousands more artifacts. Um, and so we subsequently used that as some of our strongest evidence for the value of the site. So after six years of partnering with the state of uh, New Jersey in an effort to protect the integrity of its historic preservation process, uh, finally the court, and going all the way up to the appeals court in New Jersey, uh, the court decided that the site uh, should be protected. It is now a state park, mm-hmm. and uh, the tribe holds powwows there with other tribes on a regular basis and kind of continuing celebration of of what unfortunately is a rare victory uh, for the preservation community for tribes on the East Coast. And so we continue to look to that uh, case, not only for our daily inspiration when we try and tell ourselves that this fight for preservation is worth it, but also for the precedent it has set that tribes, if they get organized and if they get unified, uh, can in fact be a successful participant in the uh, preservation discussion. You know, one other issue that that you raised, and it's a fascinating one because I, I remember that we had actually been approached to get involved in this at one point in time, and I, it was a long time ago. I don't remember how we ended up not doing it, but one of the inadvertent situations that emerged here clearly was when you ran the backhoe through the, through the site, you saw not only the density of artifacts, but you also 
clearly came through some stratigraphy there. And you just sort of uh, verify the fact that not only is this a site that was semi-continuously occupied, but there was pockets of it that were pre preserved in place, which clearly must have strengthened your case, right? It is the case. You know, the, the top of the site had been farmed, and most people would think that if you run farm equipment over a site that that destroys the site. In reality, most sites can still maintain their value if a plow goes over it because the artifacts are generally shifted in proportion to one another. If they're moved one foot this way, they move one foot the other way. Um, so what was really exciting to us is that when the, when the township secured the right to take a backhoe up there and go down 16 feet, what they what we ultimately discovered is that there were projected millions of artifacts and that they were preserved in sight, intact, uh, many feet down. Um, so it's, uh, it was, for me, an exciting history lesson. That's what I love so much about this area of the practice of law is that I'm learning something about human history every day. And, of course, that's the motivation for preserving things in the first place is so that we can take the lessons of history and try and craft this, uh, some new strategy for the way that we live and hopefully live better. And, and I guess one of the other questions, and I don't want to belabor the point, but the, the, the case was so fascinating when it was going on. Um, did they decide that they, clearly they couldn't do anything with this, with this site because it, it was extensive and deep and it had every indication of being a large site that was also very deep? So did they just preserve it in place and just stop all work? Or was there any formal excavation that was undertaken as a follow-up to it to demonstrate its integrity? and to provide any further integrity uh, indications of, of how significant it was or was it just once once that was done it was just decided to keep it in place once that was done once it was clear to just about everybody that the site was incredibly unique that it had reflected life for really 10 millennia um, we decided to keep it but the, the courts helped us decide to keep it uh, intact. Now, as you know, sometimes preserving things intact doesn't mean that they're preserved without excavation forever, but over time, we develop greater and greater technologies that are less and less disruptive so that, you know, down the road, if everyone decided that we wanted to learn more from the site, we might be able to do it with, uh, with less destruction. So, but in the meantime, because it's not just a archaeological site, but a cultural and really a religious site. Um, preservation was what everyone decided um, would be the best thing. And in fact, uh, I just heard that the Vernon Township Historical Society, which in which my good friend Jesse Palladini is involved, and Jesse was really an invaluable uh, contributor to our victory. She was a former journalist who uh, uh, took a really great role in helping to, us to advocate and understand the community up there. Jesse just told me that they've secured grants uh, from the state and I think from the history uh, channel to, among other things, do all the signage for the site. So pretty soon I'll be able to take my five-year-old daughter, Amelia, up there and tell her the story not just about the Native Americans who live there, but um, about how her daddy was lucky enough to be in a, a battle that came out on the right side. 
Now, is there a marker there right now, uh, any signage, any designation that the public going out to Vernon can take a look at and say, well, this is, this is a, a, an extensive, significant Native American site? Is there any indication of that? Because I haven't been there in a long time, so I don't know. I think there is some signage now, but I know in the next couple of months there will be extensive uh, signage. And uh, if anybody ever wants to go take a look at the site, I would just encourage you to get in touch with Jessie through the Vernon Historical Society. It, um, she's a delightful person who gives great tours, and uh, it's a wonderful place to go and just uh, sit and contemplate what life was like for 10,000 years before uh, you know, George Washington slept here. Right. And so after this case, uh, which I guess, how long did it go? About five years, five and a half years. Wow. And um, you were doing this all through, uh, through your original company, or you were doing this through another umbrella? How, how were you doing that? Because you had mentioned that you had just been in your job for three months. So how did that yes, sort my, of... my, my old law firm, uh, which became DLA Piper, um, was extremely generous in allowing me to do this. Now, uh, for all those young attorneys out there who have 2,000 billable hour requirements a year, I can tell you, I build all 2,000 billable hours, and then I put in between 800 and 1,000 extra hours just on uh, this case. Uh-huh. So when my, when my wife met me, um, and she's my law partner and really is a leader in the historic preservation law field, when we met, I was sleeping at the office on a mattress that had been given to me, a blow-up mattress that had been given to me by my friends. I was showering at the office. I hadn't been home in weeks. Uh, I'm sure I smelled great. Yeah. But, uh, okay, we don't need to get was, into that. Yeah. Yeah. She was, uh, I think, more interested in the topic uh, than than me at that point. But um, So, yeah, it took a lot. But the, the law firm was very supportive as was uh, Womble, Carlisle, Sandridge, and Rice, which was the second law firm that I worked with uh, in the latter part of uh, the case. And, you know, to their credit, these big law firms sometimes get bad reputations for all the uh, big corporate work they do, but they also have the capacity to be able to lend out some of their associates to do great work in the world. And uh, those two firms had had and have terrific pro bono programs that allowed me to do this uh, work. So, one of, and they had one no of, expectation of getting paid for it. So Right. So so I guess a follow-up question to this, and I think this is something that even most people in the North American archaeological community aren't familiar with. Uh, as a result of this and as a result of uh, the numerous cases that, that have come up in, in the wake of NAGPRA generally, are there across the country... Um, a number of companies or law firms or practices that are now um, getting involved in Native American issues, archaeological and preservation issues. We know that they do get involved in antiquities, uh, international antiquities exchanges, but are are NAGPRA items becoming uh, big uh, topics for law firms to actually get involved with on a a traditional basis, or, or is that not true? Well, uh, there's certainly, as Native Americans come to understand that they have a greater amount of leverage within the law than they had 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago, uh, they're certainly attempting to exercise, as they should, that authority. And that means that there's 
uh, more cases focused on these types of issues. Um, you know, the, when we started our law firm five years ago, um, there was then, and I'm not sure there is now, any other firm that focuses full-time on cultural heritage law. There are certainly plenty of lawyers, including some great Native American lawyers, who uh, do this as part of their practice or who do it on the side. But we were told uh, back in the day by some of our closest friends that being able to make a good living while also doing good within the cultural heritage law field was probably not possible as evidenced by the absence of firms doing it. Uh, we gave it a try, and for the first two years, I sus- we suspect that they may have been right. <laughs> but we managed to get through the startup years, and uh, so I suspect that other folks are going to be looking at our firm over the next couple of years and saying, you can, in fact, um, make a, uh, a really good living for your family while you're also doing this kind of law, and I expect we'll see more firms focusing on this in the years ahead, especially as there's a greater appreciation for the value that preserving cultural heritage plays, not just for its own sake, but in terms of economic development and job creation and, frankly, uh, peacemaking. Of course. And we will be back with this very fascinating discussion with um, Greg Werkheiser after these words. Don't go away. There is more to come. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Up Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Can you dig it, baby? This is 
This is Joe Schildenrein. We're back with another very fascinating episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the items that has uh, encouraged a lot of enthusiasm on the part of the listenership, and which is very, very uh, de rigueur right now in the 21st century, is this entire question of uh, heritage preservation in North America, specifically relationships between Native American groups, archaeology, and the preservation ethic in general. Uh, One of the interesting topics that um, I think Greg has, Greg Orkheiser, who's my guest this this evening, has a a perspective on is this entire question of Native Americans in the eastern United States. Now, NAGPRA, which has been uh, the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act that has been in force now for uh, close to 25 years, uh, is uh, an, a topic and a source of uh, actual um, motivation and research and studies on preservation in the western part of the United States where uh, lineages and connections to Native American matters are much more strongly expressed than they are in the eastern United States have certainly taken the forefront and the center stage in such items as Kennewick Man, which most people who are involved in, in archaeology Uh, are familiar with. We have had two programs on that topic, and I suggest you go to the archives and the podcasts and retreat that. But the question of Native American continuity and lineage in the eastern United States is a much more subtle topic, in part because it's a little bit more difficult to demonstrate connections. Archaeological sites are generally much more fragmentary in this part of the world. And uh, the subtleties and the legalities, I would imagine, and and Greg will chime in on this, uh, are are, are a little bit more tricky and difficult to deal with. And then, of course, there's the the question of uh, how Native Americans get involved in the contemporary economy, which also gets involved in, in, in what we're going to talk about right now. And that is the situation with the Lenny Lenape and the recognition of, of that tribe in uh, the New Jersey area, and a recent case that Greg has gotten involved with where the governor of New Jersey and uh, I guess one could say a weak presidential candidate at this point is involved in. Why don't you tell us, Greg, a little bit about your case with Governor Christie and the state of New Jersey and the recognition and potential rescinding of their uh, status of the Lenny Lenape in New Jersey? Sure. Well, unfortunately, uh, we've had to sue the Christie administration on behalf of the Nanticoke Lenny Lenape. Uh, We've brought a civil rights action in federal court alleging violations of the U.S. Constitution and the New Jersey Constitution. And the basis of the case is that uh, after almost 30 years of recognition by the state of New Jersey, the Nanakotanilinape tribal nation and two other tribes that I don't represent but who are in the same boat, um, the state of New Jersey now, its position is that after 30 years of saying we have three state-recognized tribes, the Christie administration has taken the position that New Jersey has no Native American tribes. Uh, we could go into why that is. I'm sure we will. But the primary basis of the lawsuit is us going to federal court to say 
look, uh, federal judges, the state can't be allowed to act this way. It's acting in a way that is deeply uh, harmful to the tribe, and uh, they've done this without any kind of due process, and as a consequence, you need to declare that uh, it's not proper. Right. And so what is the basis of this? I mean... We had worked actually years ago with the Lenny Lenape, and even back before the 80s and the late 70s, they were recognized as probably the broadest and most widely represented uh, tribal association in this part of the country. I mean, they were the voice of Native Americans in that entire mid-Atlantic area. So what happened? Uh, what we believe happened, what I think we've got evidence to show has happened, is that there was a race-based assumption on the part of certain members of the executive in New Jersey that, uh, that any tribe, any Native American tribe, by definition, wants casinos. Uh, and as a consequence, they have overreacted to that false assumption and said, hey, we don't want to upset any of our Atlantic City uh, folks, so we're just going to pretend as if these tribes don't exist, uh, or retroactively pretend them out of existence. Um, the, the problem with that assumption, other than the fact that it's it's based on race, and of course there are hundreds of tribes that have no interest in casinos, is in fact that's the case with the Nanticoke and Lenape. Their constitution uh, forbids them from profiting off of any form of vice, including gambling. They're part of a multi-tribe pact uh, opposed to using gambling to bring their people up economically. And they have told the state over and over again that they have no interest in, in gaming. But uh, uh, this is not a rational reaction from the state, and I don't want to give them any more credit than... Uh, they deserve. It's a it's a race based reaction. And when you make assumptions like that, and you uh, take away rights of a people based on their race, that's violative of uh, the civil rights laws of the United States and and of New Jersey. And unfortunately, that's why we're having to sue. We spent uh, two years negotiating with the state to avoid suing. I should say. We spoke with the Attorney General's office. We spoke with the Governor's office. We were very close to having the Attorney General's office issue a retraction of their efforts to deny the uh, tribe uh, recognition. But uh, two things happened. The, the bridge scandal, you may recall, broke in New Jersey, and that distracted the administration for some time and in many ways weakened it and made it more sensitive to uh, rational or irrational political urges. And then uh, ultimately, uh, Governor Christie decided he was running for president. And by that point, uh, it was clear that the state was not going to take any action to do the right thing. And our only choice was to uh, file suit in federal court to seek to have the state's actions uh, declared improper. It almost seems like a self-defeating strategy, though. I mean, uh, it, it just, it, it, from my, my perspective, it doesn't, make, doesn't seem to make any sense. Was there a sense uh, amongst you, the folks who were involved with it, that basically the executive branch of the state did not believe the uh, elders or the tribal representatives that, that they were not interested in gaming? Was that, that part of it? I mean, what, what was it? I'm going to hesitate to speculate as to the mental uh, 
processes or absence thereof of uh, folks within the executive in New Jersey. All I know is that they've taken this action. It's pretty clear that they're doing it either out of fear of uh, the political backlash from Atlantic City interests uh, or because they genuinely believe that there is uh, some threat. I, I don't know which of the two of those it is, and I'd, I'd hesitate to uh, put thoughts in their mind. But, you know, to, to, to just demonstrate how irrational this is, if, if you watch the Republican uh, primary debate, presidential debate the other night, you heard Donald Trump brag about how he got out of Atlantic City as quickly as possible, perhaps before other people. That's because, uh, in his words, Atlantic City has cratered. Uh, I, I wouldn't use words that are that direct or cool, probably. But the concept that anybody, Native American or not, thinks that it's a good business idea at this point to be opening up casinos in and around the Atlantic City area. Of course. It's kind yeah. of, a, it's, it's absurd. In fact, uh, Mr. Trump sued uh, two casinos down there to have his name removed from them because he didn't want to be, uh, he didn't want to have his name tarnished by association. I will let the obvious jokes make themselves, <laughs> but, right. uh, you know, clearly it's, uh, it's irrational. So all we're trying to do now is get the state's attention. This should be resolved out of court, but um, but we're not in a position to decide that right now. The state is the one; it's a, in a position to either solve this or not. Um, and if they don't, then the courts will. Can you give us a little more information on this, or is it uh, uh, currently so active that you really can't talk about it? No, I, I'm I'm happy to talk about it further. You know, the the Nanticoke Lenape Indians uh, are about three thousand uh, people. Uh, their ancestors are the folks who were able to remain in New Jersey uh, after most of their cousins and brothers and sisters were kicked out of New Jersey into uh, uh, Pennsylvania. And then they were kicked out of Pennsylvania into Ohio. They were kicked out of Ohio into Indiana and then from Indiana into Oklahoma right. and Canada. And right. that's why we have the Delaware Indians, which is another name for Plenty Lenape Indians, in Oklahoma and Canada because of a series of broken treaties. Interestingly, the first treaty that the American government signed after the Declaration of Independence was with the Plenty Lenape tribe. They promised the tribe that they could have their own state and a seat in Congress if the tribe would ally with the revolutionary um, military and basically helped battle the British. And the Lenape were, in fact, helpful in that battle. But as we can all have suspect, the uh, nascent American government did not live up to its uh, promises to provide them land and representation. Uh, there was a, um, a reservation that was actually created in New Jersey called the Brotherton Reservation that was intended to protect the tribes from the increasing amount of attacks on them by colonists, but that did not protect them. So ultimately, uh, most of them were moved out of New Jersey. But the ones that stayed, stayed because they were able to hide their identity for a time, and their ancestors are the folks uh, that, I, uh, that I now represent. Um, and so this is a community that has been in the Bridgeton area of New Jersey. Some families have lived in the same community for uh, hundreds of years. 
and the, they have been regular participants in the civic life of New Jersey. The case that we described in the first half of this show, the Black Creek case, it was because of the tribe standing up for the state and the state's structure and process of preserving historic sites that New Jersey's efforts to preserve historic sites weren't uh, harmed and adulterated. So we've, the tribe has been a partner for the state for 30 years, explaining the logic behind the Christie administration's about face when all uh, so many pr- uh, previous governors have clearly stated to the federal government, look, these guys are state recognized. It's, it's absurd. The, the reason that state recognition matters, and I'll close on this point, uh, the reason it matters is not because if you're a state recognized tribe, you get a bunch of stuff from the state budget. In fact, you get virtually nothing by virtue of being state recognized from the state. What you do get is limited access to certain federal benefits. For instance, the tribe, uh, many of its elders produce crafts that they have, that have been passed down. The skills to produce these crafts have been passed down to them from generation to generation. Uh, drums, uh, wampum, beadwork, uh, dresses, that stuff can be sold as Native American made only if you've got at least state, if not federal, recognition. If you don't have state recognition, you can sell it on the market but can't label it as Indian made. And as a consequence, its value drops so significantly that it's a complete economic disincentive to make this stuff anymore. It's as if you and I had uh, kids that went to elementary school and came home and and had practiced making something for Native American Arts Month. That's the same a presence it has in the market. As a consequence, the tribe is losing uh, so much income upon which they depend to, uh, to, for kids to go to college, for seniors to support themselves. Indeed, uh, scholar, college scholarships have been lost as a consequence of the state now questioning the status of this tribe that's been recognized for so long. And grants to help what is a severely economically distressed community uh, get and keep jobs, uh, take better care of themselves in terms of their health care. There's a high rate of diabetes within the community. Sure. Those grants are beginning to disappear. So if you add all that up, you know, it adds up to a couple million dollars, which might not seem a lot to the state. But when you're talking about a community that is doing its best to uh, get up the economic ladder, it's, it's really devastating. So this, this is. is not yeah. just a semantical question about are they recognized. It's a question about can these people make a decent living uh, doing hardworking, legitimate stuff, or are you going to take that away from them? We will be back with our final segment on this very fascinating program on uh, cultural heritage and uh, the litigation with respect to Native American rights and archaeological sites and preservation. Right after these words, we'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. 
However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. My guest today is Greg Werkheiser, who is the founding partner of the law and policy firm Cultural Heritage Partners. And Greg is basically at the cutting edge of legal issues related to archaeological preservation, heritage management, and uh, issues related to uh, the entire question of uh, cultural resource management and heritage preservation on the national and increasingly on the international scale. We've been discussing a very fascinating case that he has wherein the state of New Jersey is threatening to remove the federal recognition of the Lenny Lenape tribe in New Jersey for reasons that uh, seem to be confusing to many people. But uh, what I did want to know for those of us, uh, Greg, from, for those of us who've been following the program, where does it stand right now? Well, the complaint has been filed. The state is due to provide its response, its answer, in uh, a couple of weeks, and uh, we'll see. If your listening audience wants to follow the case, we're going to be placing all of the documents and media coverage of this, which has been pretty substantial. It's been... um, uh, it got picked up by a great reporter by the Associated Press, and so it's been in newspapers across the country. Uh, we're going to be placing all of that on our firm's website at culturalheritagepartners.com. The complaint is up there now, and you can also read uh, any press statements that we make about it. So uh, follow along, uh, listeners, if you're interested in how the case develops. And um, I should also say that, you know, these cases are incredibly complex, and uh, although I'm the one being interviewed with you, I've got two amazing co-counsel in this case who, in their own right, are really interesting folks. Eden Burgess, with my firm, cut her teeth in Holocaust art repatriation cases and has been a real leading thinker in that field. And then uh, for local counsel in New Jersey, Frank Corrado of the firm Barry Corrado and Grassi out of Wildwood is our 
local counsel. He's a terrific lawyer with a focus on constitutional law and civil rights cases. He's the former president of the ACLU in New Jersey. So we're bringing out as many big guns, present company not included, as we can, hmm. and hoping that uh, the state does the right uh, does the right thing. But we thank you for your interest and and look forward to keeping you apprised of how the case develops. Looking further down the road, how do you see uh, your firm and uh, the legal aspects of the type of work that you do expanding into the various domains of cultural resource, heritage, preservation, antiquities on both the national and international front? Where are we going with this? Uh, great question. So, what we're seeing is over the five years that we've had the firm focused exclusively on cultural heritage law and policy, we've seen the diversity of clients coming to us increase substantially. So in the beginning, it was uh, Native American tribes, and then came the cultural resource management firms. So the private sector is now recognizing that it has a role to play. This isn't just the purview of uh, preservation nonprofits. Uh, we've seen domestic, state, and federal government agencies uh, seek counsel on whether or not their policies are responsive and uh, appropriate. Uh, we see a lot of coalition building. So one of the things we're working on is pulling together uh, Preservation 50, which will be the United States celebration in 2016 of the 50th anniversary of the National Historic Preservation Act, which mm-hmm. has transformed the landscape of preservation in the United States over the past 50 years. So we're honored to be able to pull that um, year-long celebration together on behalf of the um, federal government agencies and, and other national nonprofits that are involved. And people can get involved in that. Regular citizens can plug into that dialogue about what's the future of preservation in this country. Um, If you don't mind me dropping another URL to send your folks to, it's preservation50.org, so they can check that out. Um, And, you know, there's a, uh, uh, what we're seeing now are foreign countries that are coming to us, and I'm sure other lawyers within the field, and saying, hey, we need help uh, protecting our own heritage. So we represent, for instance, a, uh, a very famous foreign country that has a famous collection of some of the most interesting artifacts in the world, and yet because of a recent revolution in that country, looting has been rampant. Roughly $4 billion have been, uh, of, um, of material has been uh, dug up not far from some very famous sites and sold on the black market frequently uh, to purchasers in the United States and in China who are purchasing things illegally. You can, in fact, buy some of these things on eBay, believe it or not. Uh, And that international market is increasingly driving terrorism. So uh, my business partner and spouse, Marion Warkheiser, just got back from a really interesting conference in Cairo where all the countries in the Middle East were getting together to determine how they could band together to more effectively prevent groups like ISIS from uh, selling their uh, looted heritage and funding their terrorist operations. So what used to, to, long answer to your question, what used to be thought of as uh, preservation, the purview of, you know, blue-haired old ladies who wanted to uh, preserve the, uh, 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 the local historical site, 
and bless, by the way, bless those blue-haired old ladies, because were it not for them, <laughs> the past 50 years of preservation would not have happened. No question. But what you're seeing now is a, is a real international, a growing international appreciation that when things are destroyed in Syria or Iraq or Egypt, that that injures everyone's ability to understand human history, not just the culture's uh, in in those countries now, when things are destroyed in the United States, whether it's Native American or or stuff since you know uh, since the colonial period, uh, that destroys not just our ability to tell our story, but everyone's ability to appreciate the full human story. So the international appreciation of the value of cultural heritage, not as a luxury but as a necessity for economic development, for peacemaking, for uh, planning a, a better future that learns uh, based on the lessons we've learned in the past, that's where I think the movement is, is heading. It's going to become much more sophisticated, more international, more collaborative across sectors. I want to thank my very special guest, Greg Workheiser of Cultural Heritage Partners and his very insightful discussion on cultural heritage, preservation, research planning, resource planning, and ultimately um, the protection of resources on an international scale for enlightening us on what promises to be very interesting few years as uh, the legal elements of archaeology and preservation sort of seek a, an equilibrium together. I think the future is very promising here for a variety of reasons, not all of which are very positive. But nevertheless, this is the type of work that will probably keep our profession going for a very long time. Thank you very much, Greg. Joe, thank you for what you do. I appreciate it. We all do. Thanks very much. Okay. And until the next week, we will see you again. Have a wonderful week. Thank you and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.